we know. And Jesus said, you don't know. You can't know without being born again. He says, are you Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things? Today, Jesus comes to a woman of ill repute who is irritable, who blows him off at every opportunity, who will not give him a drink of water. A woman of sin. A woman who could not be more unlike Jesus across barriers of every conceivable kind. And Jesus says to her, the Father is seeking people like you to worship him. Today I want to invite us to, um, to abandon our inner Nicodemus. To embrace the woman at the well. And most of all, to celebrate and love and worship the Jesus who comes for people like us. Uh, we're going to spend a few weeks on this passage because it's that good. But today I just want to take a look at Jesus and his priorities, what it is that he is looking for. Verse 4 tells us that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And the first thing you need to know about this passage is that that is not true. That in a manner of speaking, it is not true that no self-respecting Jew in the first century would pass through Samaria if they had any option. It's the shortest way. Um, But Samaritans are just the ugly people. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, And so if you're a Jew, you're either going to go down um, to the Dead Sea and you're going to go up through the desert to get up to Galilee or you're going to go over to the coast and you're going to go up along the coast. But whatever you do, you will not pass through Samaria unless you're in a real big hurry. One rabbi taught that if it was necessary, a Jewish person should even step into the ditch to avoid their shadow coming in contact with the shadow of a Samaritan person. So the only conceivable reason Jesus would have to need to pass through Samaria is if he's in a desperate hurry. And we know that's not true because he ends up spending two days in this town. So why is it that Jesus needs to pass through Samaria? Jesus needs to pass through Samaria because he is about his father's mission. He needs to pass through Samaria because he needs to talk to this woman. And he needs to meet the people of this town. That he is a man with a passion and a mission. He has a fire in his gut. So much so that he needs to go to the dark places. He needs to. He has a need to do that. Because it's his passion. It's what his father cares about. It's what he came for to fulfill the message, the calling of Israel from all time. To be a blessing to the nations. And here's this nation on their doorstep, not literally on their door, actually sandwiched. You got Israel up here, you got Israel down here, you got Samaria in here. Jesus needs to pass through there. And he had to cross a number of barriers to do it. I am uh, wholesale borrowing this list from uh, Jaron Bars, who's my uh, professor in seminary. I have my apologetic students read his stuff. This is an important passage for him. First, um, there's a racial barrier. In the Old Testament, the Samaritans 
is shorthand for the northern tribes of Israel, the ten tribes who are not Benjamin and Judah. But by this point, that is no longer the case because there was uh, a couple exiles and the captivity and some other stuff that took place in there. So the Assyrians came and they carted off the northern kingdom and they took most of the people away. They left some behind, but what else did they do? Uh, They did what Stalin and a number of other pretty crafty leaders did. They imported other people there. When you're a leader and you want to destroy a people's sense of identity, you take them out of their place and you move them to another place and you take other people from their place and you move them back to their place and you mix up all these people so that their identity gets lost pretty quick. So that was the goal. So the Samaritans are um, kind of Israelites. They're, uh, they're what we might call in Hawaii hapa. They're mixed. Um, they're a mixture of a number of people from all over the Middle East. Um, And just as sometimes happens here, the Jews hated the mixture more than, it it was worse to be a blend of Jew and non-Jew than it was to just be a straight Gentile. There was a racial barrier between the Israelites and the Samaritans that Jesus crossed. There's a religious barrier. Look, the Samaritans um, were like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. And that they had the scriptures, but then a little bit more. They had the books of Moses and um, believed in the worship of the Torah and um, service at the temple. Uh, But just as they were a mixture of people, they were a mixture of religions. And so they took some of the religions of the land of Canaan and mixed them up a little bit. Kind of a little bit of this, a little bit of that. A good combination of Old Testament religion and some Philistine worship and some child sacrifice and... um, and if you're Samaritan, you can't have your temple down in Jerusalem because uh, th- that's just not going to work. And so you have your own temple up on Mount Gerizim. Uh, of course, the Old Testament says that you're only supposed to worship in Jerusalem. This is what Jesus and the woman were having a conversation about. You know, so this is, um, not only are these people mixed race, they have, uh, and they don't even have a different religion, they have the true religion messed up, uh, which is almost worse. Um, the Jews were so irritated at this that in uh, 128 B.C. they sent a, a raid of people to go burn down the temple at Mount Gerizim. So that's the kind of hostility that existed between these people. There's a racial barrier, there's a religious barrier, there's a gender barrier. The disciples come back and of all of the inappropriate things to do for Jesus to do, he's speaking with a woman. Alone, this is so uncomfortable. Who knows what's going to happen next? There might be kissing, and it's this is just you don't do this, especially not in the first century. Not only do the rabbis teach that you should not let your shadow touch the shadow of a Samaritan, they taught that you shouldn't teach a woman; they're not capable of learning. There's a racial barrier, a religious barrier, a gender barrier. There's a sin barrier. Jesus has all holiness in himself, such that if you see him as he really is, you fall down, just like Isaiah did, as we read earlier. And this woman, look, why, let me put it this way. If you live in a part of the world uh, that's really hot, and you have to go journey to get your water every day, what time of day are you going to do that at? Are you going to do that at noon? 
Why do you go to a well at noon to get your water? You go by yourself in the middle of the day if you need to avoid other people because everybody knows that you don't have respectable sins. You don't even have little sins. You, you have big sins. That uh, You've had five husbands, and in this world, that's always the woman's fault. Who knows how many women, men this woman has been with? And if you're a woman, you better just keep your husband away from her. Who knows what might happen? There's a sin barrier. A racial barrier, a religious barrier, a gender barrier, a sin barrier. And Jesus is not interested in any of those barriers. So what does he do? The first thing he does is he asks her for a drink. Verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. If, uh, if the rabbis taught that you should not let your shadow touch a Samaritan, they certainly taught that you should not eat their food. And in fact, they did. That to eat food or even touch uh, a, a food, what we would call paper products, plates, cups, of a Samaritan is the same as um, eating pork, that you're defiled. That there's a, a social custom here that Jesus steps right over. He says, I need a drink from you. From her water-drying implement because she says that he has none of his own. And in doing so, Jesus shows her his need Wrap your head around this for a second. We just heard that Jesus is the one from above. That every prophet and teacher has an earthly perspective. That Jesus is the one from above who understood in a, in a personal, first-person perspective the wisdom of the Father and the counsel of the Holy Spirit from all time. And he is here at a well, and he is thirsty. And actually says... Um, he was wearied from his journey. That Jesus has become so human that while being the one from above, he has needs. And he has dignified this woman, not just by crossing all these barriers. He is asking her to do something for him. He's putting himself in the position of the receiver. And when was the last time you think anyone asked this woman to do something for them? Jesus says, you have something that I need. You have identity and provision and fullness. And I need help. And you, you can help me. I would really appreciate it if you got me a drink of water. And he enters into a conversation with her. It's, um, it's a pointed one. It's painful at points. But he treats her with so much respect. They have conversations about the water, about thirst, about need, about her husband. And she changes the topic, except not really, because they're talking about need and worship. She says, verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, our fathers, the Samaritans, worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. And Jesus says to her, 
look, I'm the one from above. I know how this stuff works. Don't ask me questions, please. You're a woman. No. He says, that's right. That's right. We'll have this conversation. He says, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. For you worship what you do not know. The hour is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He dignifies her with a piece of information that the disciples did not even have yet. He says, that's right. You want to talk to me about theology and worship? I'll talk to you about this. Here's what's going to happen. I'm the one. That you, you've understood, you've read the scriptures, you know the Messiah is coming. I'm gonna, we're going to have this conversation. I'm him. Yes, you need to worship in Jerusalem, but actually, no, now you worship with me. That um, he asks for her help. That he, um, even though her questions are somewhat pointed and challenging, he takes them all at face value. He interacts with her with graciousness and respect at every point. And he helps her become aware of her, her own sin. Which um, she's actually quite aware of herself. She says, at the end, he told me everything that I ever did. That she's at the well. We'll talk about this next time. She has a thirst, a thirst for water. But there's more thirst than that because thirst in John is always symbolical. She has needs and she's been meeting these needs in ways that are not working for her. And Jesus wants her to know that. And so he, he draws her out. Go get your husband. I have no husband. That's right. You've had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. She says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. That he is able, in his wisdom and strength and gentleness, to get all of her most vulnerable stuff out on the table in 30 minutes or less, probably. And how do you think she felt at the end of this conversation? We have an idea because her response is to run into the town and to tell everyone that they need to come talk to this man. That he respects her with respectful conversation. He asks her to help him and he even deals with her sin in such a way that she is fully exposed and yet feels safe. And loved. And so enthusiastic that she wants other people to have the experience of having all of their crap out on the table. It's that good when it's with Jesus. If this is Jesus' passion, if this is what he has to do, it raises um, some questions for us. Are we a people who have everything that we need? Are we a people who have all of the answers and all of the supplies and all of the gifts and all of the money that we go to other people and share with them? Are we a people of need? Who is there in your life, maybe even someone that is uncomfortable for you, that has something that you need. That you can dignify them with and ask them to help you. Who is it that um, is just so untrained, so unfamiliar with the Bible, that it is difficult to have, even have a conversation with them about it? And what would it be like? 
for us to dignify them with a conversation, to take their questions at face value, to interact with them honestly and seriously and find out that they actually might be real good questions that deserve good answers. And when we interact with people's sin, how do they experience us? Do we individually, do we as a community, give off the impression that this is a safe place to unload your junk and that you will be safe here, that you can have um, drug addictions, that you can fail exams, that you can have squirmy, disobedient children? And it's okay. Actually, it's not okay. It's great to have you here. We are so glad to have you. This is so great. I was in a church once. Um, there was a couple actually in leadership in the church. This church had um, people share their testimonies, um, kind of at the point where we do congregational prayer every so often. And one Sunday, I will never forget this for the rest of my life, one of the leaders got up and he shared his testimony including some general details about the affair that occurred in their marriage and how he was wrong and how gracious the Lord had been to them and how much that painful situation had changed and transformed their lives. We had in that same church another guy named Mark. And uh, you know, I was just a young college student at the time. And every time I showed up, Mark, he's this uh, middle-aged single guy. Nathaniel, how are you? How are you? And every time he talked to me, he looked me in the eyes. And I knew that he meant it. And Mark had a lot of pain in his life, so much so that at some point he had turned to drugs to numb some of that pain. And uh, I don't remember this part of the story, how it happened, but someone somewhere invited him to our church, and for some reason, he felt like this might be an okay place for me to be as someone who struggled on and off with drug addiction. And uh, he heard the gospel and knew that he was welcomed and forgiven and became uh, just such an integral and loved part of the community. Did you know what happened then? He relapsed. And the church would not let him go. And uh, people went and chased him down, and it took some months. And he was back with tears. And everyone was just glad to have Mark back. And uh, it went on like this for years. Mark faithfully attending for months, years, and then relapsing and shame and then coming back again. Because, look, these things just don't go away quickly. And um, the sad part of the story is that um, Mark finally relapsed what was in his mind one too many times. And uh, he took his life. And we served him one last time. 
and had a funeral service for him. And the building was packed because he changed all of our lives. The question is, are we as a people, are we as a community, the kind of place where those kinds of people are welcome? I chatted with a high school student this last week um, who has a, a hard time receiving grace. He, um, he's just really scared to go there. And so we sat down and we had a conversation about that. And um, in the course of the conversation, he said, you know, because I was asking him about his family, and he said, um, it's hard for us and our family to let people know about the real stuff. He said, my, my parents kind of have this facade about them. And I said, well, well, where is it that you guys, where is it that you guys feel safe letting that down? And he said, uh, or, no, the question was, um, where, is it that, where is it that you feel like you need to keep that up in your life? And, uh, and he said, everywhere, except at home. He said, especially at church. We go in, and no matter what's been happening on the car and the way to church, as soon as we get there, hey, how's it going? You know, and so I asked him, what would it be like if, uh, if you walked into church one day and you're standing with your parents and all, you know, your parents' friends were like, hey, how's it going? How was your weekend? Your parents were like, it was great. And you were like, well, it was really rough. Um, Mom got upset and threw a cup through a window. And um, he was like, <gasps> that would never happen. So he's beginning to understand grace, but um, somehow... As Christians, we breed communities like that, and it makes it, it makes it difficult. It makes it difficult to receive grace, to be honest, for our children to understand grace, and it makes other people feel dif- difficult coming in here and being honest about that kind of stuff because the real question is not, are we a community that can be comfortable with those kinds of people? The real question is, are we comfortable with being those kinds of people? Because those are the kinds of people that the Father is coming to worship. Look, even Nicodemus is one of those people. He just doesn't know it yet. So what sorts of things enabled and strengthened Jesus to cross those barriers that would maybe strengthen us to cross those barriers in our own lives with ourselves and with other people? I've got four. Here's the first one. Genesis 1, let us make man and woman in our image, in our likeness, and let us have dominion and authority. Look, even since before the fall, human beings are made in God's image. The fall messed that up, but it did not destroy it. And so... Every human being is, as Francis Schaeffer says, glorious ruins. That we're ruined. We are wrecked. But the glory is still there. It's like a glorious cathedral, broken down, grass growing where the nave used to be. And yet you can see its glory. That there is not one of us alive on this earth that does not have some remnant of dignity and glory. Last night, I went through the drive through at Wendy's, because I don't have that much glory, and sometimes you just need a Frosty. 
And uh, I come out of the drive-thru, and here's this homeless man who has not taken a bath in a long time. And uh, he caught me with the window rolled down because I had just gotten my food. And he says, do you have any money? And I, I didn't really, and also I usually don't give money away. But look, he's a man made in God's image. That's a little piece of Jesus' dignity standing right there. And you know what I said? I said, I've got a Frosty. And he was like, man, that would be awesome. So I handed him my Frosty, went around through the drive-thru again. There is no one, yourself included, that does not have some remnant or dignity of the original creation. That Jesus made you, he made you well, and it makes it easy for him to cross across all barriers. Those rules of the rabbis, those are not biblical rules. And Jesus has no interest in rules that are not rules. Rules about race, rules about religion, rules about gender. Jesus is not interested. He's not having it. If you're a human being, you're made in his image. Two, forgiveness of sins. That Jesus knew what he was about to do. He's been communicating it for all of history through sacrifices in the temple, and now he came to himself to accomplish it himself on the cross, that he knows that, look, it doesn't matter what you do. Five husbands, drug addiction, yelling at your kids, cheating on your taxes, I don't care. It's forgiven. Look, it's already been forgiven. It was forgiven before you were born. The stuff you haven't done yet, also forgiven. But Jesus doesn't view people the way we do. as He's not an account taker. Well, there's a lot of sins in the sin column. There's no sins in the sin column. There's nothing there to be concerned about. I mean, yes, there's... The problem here is that the sin is not working well for this woman. There's a better way to live. It, being made in the image of God, the power of the forgiveness of sins. Three... Jesus' own weariness. He understands your thirst. And any one of us as a human being should understand it as well. That you look at another person, it doesn't matter what the source of their hurt is, and there's always something because we live in a fallen world. We know what that's like, don't we? And to move towards them knowing they've been made in the image of God. Jesus is able to forgive their sins. And these sins are happening because they're hurting and we're hurting too. This makes it easy to connect. I've totally been there. I know what that's like. I'm thirsty too. And what was the great thing about that man sharing in his testimony about his affair? Which of us has, is married and has not thought at some point about having an affair? Come on, people. finally, for our own status. That if we understand the gospel correctly, we know not just that um, we're also made in the image of God and thirsty and weary and have forgiveness of sins, that we also are outcasts. That Jesus came running across time and space for us, like the disciples, sought them out, called them in, just like he did for this woman at the well. He had to go through Samaria, just as he had to chase you down and be faithful to you all the days of your life. And for me and for you, if he had not done that, we would be on the outside. You know, most of these barriers apply to us. Not many of us in here are Jewish people. We're from a foreign people, from a foreign land, who struggle with sins that we'd be embarrassed for people to know about. We are the woman at the well. And it is us 
that the Father is seeking to worship him. And if we're ready to join the woman at the well and to say, that's right, I have, I have no husband. I have no well. I have no satisfaction for my thirst. Jesus will be there to cross the barriers and to welcome us and to empower us to communicate that to other people. I'm going to close with this. Um, you know, growing up, I did not have a father in my life for most of my childhood. And um, I met my friend Ryan, the one I was talking about at the beginning. I was in seventh grade, and uh, before long, we were doing sleepovers at house and that kind of stuff, because that's what you do when you're in seventh grade. And Ryan's dad, Ryan's dad Doug, figured out pretty quickly my home situation, and he said, this is a young man who needs a man in his life. And he loved me. I was welcome to come over to their house at any time. It was within walking distance of my house. We made pancakes and ate breakfast together. Look, I wasn't in the Boy Scouts because nobody bothered to tell me about the Boy Scouts when I was a kid. That would have been awesome, uh, but Ryan was. And so when they went on their camping trips, they invited me to come. When Ryan graduated from the Senate Page program in Washington, D.C., they paid for me to fly from Seattle to D.C. so that I could be there with them as part of their family for this moment in Ryan's life. It was the first time that I was ever in an airplane. Here's the kicker. None of them are Christians. Of all the people in my life growing up, it was the man who was not a Christian who communicated the most to me about what it means to be a caring man. That actually should give us some, um, some hope and confidence. That th- that's what I mean by the remaining image of God, that Doug had some glory in him that he was able to impart to me as a young man. And it's a model of how we can serve and communicate that to others, especially if we're filled with the hope of the gospel. Let's pray.